From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The pandemic raises many ethical questions, and for help understanding how to think about particular issues, I'm talking with Dr. Sid Johnson. She's a philosopher and associate professor of bioethics and humanities at Upstate. I appreciate your time, Dr. Johnson. Thanks for inviting me. Without getting into politics, I'd like to ask you about the ethics of vaccine mandates. In a free society, how can people be required to get vaccinated? Well, there are people who think that vaccine mandates involve actually coercing individuals to be vaccinated against their will. And that's really not true. People will still retain their right to refuse vaccines, even if there are mandates in place. But it does mean that their options to be involved in public and social life and to enjoy some of the benefits of living in a society will end up being restricted. So some of the first institutions that adopted mandates were colleges and universities. They can't force students to be vaccinated, but they can restrict their ability to participate in the life of the university. And I think we may see the same sorts of restrictions happening if mandates are adopted uh, on a wider scale. No one has a right to go to any particular college or university. So restricting access for the safety of other students doesn't violate anyone's rights. Access to airplanes or cruise ships or concerts or malls or other kinds of public events is just not a right. And there have always been limits on our access to those kinds of things. So a mandate would just involve one more limit and individuals will still be free to choose to refuse vaccines if they don't want them. Is the overall goal of a vaccine mandate, is it meant to protect society and put the needs of a group of people over the desires of an individual? Well, as members of a society, what we do as individuals obviously affects others. And our membership in society has benefits for us, both for us as individuals and for the whole of society. That, that's the social contract. And in exchange for the benefits of living in a society, we agree that we will bear the burdens and responsibilities of contributing to the common good. And that includes protecting others. And individuals who refuse to contribute to the common good are typically called free riders in philosophy. They want the benefits, but they don't want any of the responsibilities. And in my view, vaccine refusers are free riders. They're willing to let others protect them by getting vaccinated. They're willing to use healthcare resources if they get sick and need to go to the hospital. So I don't think it's as simple as saying that there's a conflict between the needs of the group and the desires of individuals. If your desires as an individual endanger others, then society can rightly place limits on your activities. I've seen companies that entice workers to get vaccinated with cash bonuses and I've seen companies that say unvaccinated workers are going to have to pay a surcharge um, for their health care coverage. Is the carrot or the stick, is this a more sort of ethical approach? Well, I think that the, the general strategy is to do what's going to work. And of course, we always prefer it if we can reward people rather than um, than take things away from them. Um, and so for people who will be motivated by by cash or, or 
um, by some kind of reward or a lottery system or something like that, um, that's great, right? Let's motivate them to the extent possible by providing some kind of, of carrot. But there are still people who are not going to be swayed by that and people who will still refuse to be vaccinated. And in those cases, I think we don't really have a good choice other than to start to restrict their access to some of the benefits that are valuable to them. And part of what we're trying to do there is make life more inconvenient for them and persuade them in that way to, to get vaccinated. But they are still free to refuse. So there's no, um, you know, the sticks don't involve things like putting you in prison or something like that. So there, I don't think there's really a problem with having those kinds of incentives either. Some of the other sticks are that you have to get maybe a daily or weekly COVID test, which right. aren't necessarily, you know, pleasant. So they're, they're not especially pleasant. And I think, again, the idea there is that we're going to make it inconvenient for you not to be vaccinated. The, the problem is, though, that being vaccinated and getting tested every week or twice a week or, or however often it is, are not really equivalent. You being tested will catch if you're infected, but by the time we've tested you, you might have already infected a dozen or two dozen people. Getting vaccinated, on the other hand, protects you from getting infected, but it also protects other people that you might in turn infect. So they're not really equivalent in that sense, and we shouldn't think that they are. But again, the point is to try to incentivize people to get vaccinated rather than go through the inconvenience of being tested. Now, earlier when the vaccines first became available widely, um, you saw different states running lotteries to try to get people to get vaccinated. And I wonder from sort of a philosopher's point of view, do gimmicks like that help or do they hurt the effort to build a sense of solidarity with public health and willingness, you know, to take risks for the common good. I don't, I don't think they hurt in the sense that they might prompt some people to become vaccinated. The problem with those kinds of incentives is that they don't really build that sense of community. They exploit people's self-interest. And the problem right now, I think, is that a lot of people think that their self-interest and the common good are not aligned. And so having incentives that simply promote your self-interest sort of exacerbates that problem. It doesn't get you to, to really think about what you might owe to, to the members of your community or to your fellow citizens and what's good for everyone. Is there an ethical distinction between mandating a vaccine with emergency use authorization versus one that has the full FDA approval? I don't think there's really an important ethical distinction there. We um, we certainly saw that there was an, an attempt, at least, to draw a legal distinction there. Um, the EUA is there because FDA approval is is lengthy. It's a long process. And when there's an emergency, as we see with a global deadly pandemic, a vaccine or a drug can get approved for use when there's sufficient evidence that it's safe and that it's effective and that it is very likely to be fully approved. And that's exactly what we saw happen with the Pfizer vaccine, for example. There would be an ethical issue if something that's wholly unproven and untested and unsafe was mandated. 
we shouldn't be mandating snake oil remedies like, you know, horse dewormer or hydroxychloroquine or drinking bleach, right? But that's not the situation we're in with the EUAs. Um, some places, SUNY, for example, the SUNY system said they would not mandate vaccination until the vaccine was fully approved. Um, other universities did, and there were a number of lawsuits that were filed against them prior to the approval of the vaccines. But the courts actually did uphold those mandates even before the vaccine was fully approved. So it appears that the legal distinction was also not very significant. So would ethical considerations change based on how deadly or how infectious a disease is? We always have moral obligations to others. And as the danger to health and life becomes more serious and more urgent, our obligations to take action will increase. So um, you might compare what's happening now to the flu. We have flus that happen. We have a seasonal flu. Flu vaccines are a case where we don't mandate those vaccines. Lots of people get sick from the flu. It's very unpleasant. Some people get seriously ill. Some people require hospitalization and ventilators if they get, get pneumonia. And some people will die. But our approach to that disease takes all of that into account. Only some people will get seriously ill, our hospitals won't be overwhelmed, and every year our public health surveillance will track which flu strains are going to emerge and which vaccines to manufacture. It's not clear that, that we could sustainably mandate vaccination for flu every single year. It would require a huge amount of vaccine and a huge expenditure of resources to administer them as well. But what we're confronting now is really not comparable to the seasonal flu. One of the worst recent flu pandemics we had was in 2009 when we had the H1N1 flu. And at that point, our capacity to manufacture vaccines was fairly slow compared to the speed of the pandemic. So there was a serious shortage of vaccines. In the US, there were about 60 million people who were infected. There were about a quarter million hospitalizations and about 12,000 people died. And worldwide, it's estimated that the number of deaths might have been as high as about half a million people from that particular pandemic. But COVID is just orders of magnitude worse. There have been 220 million cases worldwide and more than 4 million deaths. So we're dealing with a much more serious and deadly pandemic, which means that our obligations to take action are just that much greater and our response has to be different. What do bioethicists uh, think about vaccine mandates that have exemptions for either medical or religious reasons? Well, vaccine mandates have to have exemptions for people who cannot be safely vaccinated, as well as for children who currently can't be vaccinated because we haven't completed the process of establishing safe doses for the vaccine for children. And it's a, just a matter of justice that we have to um, exempt those individuals and treat them fairly, just like the rest of us. But the rest of us have a moral obligation to help protect those people who cannot be vaccinated. And part of that obligation just means surrounding them with a firewall of people who are vaccinated and who can help stop the transmission of the virus. Do you think that hospitals and doctor's offices and medical facilities have a moral imperative to create a safe environment 
for their patients by themselves being 100% vaccinated? The issues are fairly different between hospitals and sort of private practice or, or clinic um, clinics that provide care to patients. Hospitals provide services um, it, that include treating people who are facing health emergencies. And, you know, as a patient, I want to know if the doctors and the staff in the clinic that I go to are vaccinated and I might decide to go somewhere else if they're not. But patients in the hospital don't really have that choice very often. And that's one reason why we might think that mandating vaccination for hospital staff um, is more important. And it is also the case, of course, that many more seriously ill people are in the hospital. Many more people who cannot themselves be vaccinated um, are in the hospital, including children and infants. So we have sort of more urgent reasons why hospital workers and staff should be vaccinated. How does the ethics of vaccination compare with other health issues in terms of people who do or don't comply with a health recommendation for any number of reasons? I'm thinking about, you know, urging people not to smoke and then treating them for smoking related illnesses or urging people to, you know, brush their teeth and then dealing with dental problems. How is this different? Well, certainly public health is involved in um, encouraging people to, to take care of their health, encouraging people to quit smoking if they're smokers, to, to be vaccinated, to take care of their teeth and so on. And there's nothing wrong with encouraging people to take better care of their own personal health. But when people have health problems, which are sometimes related to choices that they've made or lifestyle choices that they have, I think they're still morally entitled to healthcare. And I, I don't think we want to start dividing people up into those who who are performing the preferred activities and those who are not. I mean we have at that point we're making moral judgments about who is entitled to be healthy and who's entitled to live based on our decisions about which activities are preferred. Upstate's HealthLink on Air will be back with more ethical concerns during the pandemic with Dr. Sid Johnson, a bioethics and humanities assistant professor. Welcome back to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with philosopher and assistant professor Sid Johnson from Upstate's Department of Bioethics and Humanities. We spoke about vaccine mandates and whether they're morally justified, and now we're going to shift to another somewhat related issue. Early in the pandemic, when numbers were spiking in New York City, bioethicists were talking about whether there would be a need to ration ventilators. And now there are concerns about staff shortages that could mean fewer patients can be cared for. And there's also ventilator shortages in areas where COVID cases are surging. Um, I imagine guidelines and criteria vary from state to state or institution to institution. What are the most common criteria in use? Well, the criteria are not for deciding who gets admitted to the hospital and who doesn't. They are designed to ration care that is limited. So ICU beds, ventilators, ECMO. Um, the criteria usually attempt to objectively quantify which patients have the best chances of benefiting from treatment by surviving and sometimes by who's going to survive the longest. Um, the problem is when those criteria start to use measures like 
pre-existing conditions or disabilities because some of those conditions will also result in effective ind affected individuals needing health care more. So should we prioritize treatment for the people who were youngest and healthiest before they got COVID? We wouldn't usually do that if someone was in a car accident, for example. Or should we prioritize based on the greatest need, which will include people who are already more vulnerable because of their baseline health status? So it's a, a real dilemma because, of course, when you have to ration certain forms of health care, there's no choice about doing that. There just isn't enough to be um, to go around. The, the question is, how can we do that in a way that is just and fair to everyone? So rationing really would come into use only in sort of a crisis situation that that we find ourselves in. It is the primary goal always to save as many lives as possible. Is that the intent? The goal is typically to save as many lives as possible, given limited resources, and that's frequently going to involve some kind of triage where we make decisions about the likelihood of survival for a specific patient. That's typically how we do it. Those who are most likely to benefit and survive are prioritized for treatment. What about our ethicists okay with random lotteries? to decide like who gets the ventilator? Well, random lotteries appear to be fair um, on, on the face of it, um, but we still might, obviously if it's truly random, we might be catching people who could survive without the ventilator rather than someone who uh, really could not survive without it. So there's a, a certain kind of fairness in randomness, but we also have to look at you know, which patients are, are in that lottery to begin with? Is it everyone who presents on a particular day? What if someone the next day comes in who, who needs that ventilator even more, right? Uh, do we, once they're distributed, do we just leave it as it is? So there's problems with doing that. And, and part of it is that people don't all come to the hospital at the same time with the same health conditions. So it's not especially feasible to have that kind of selection process. So it wouldn't be fair to do first come first serve either then because people are not all coming at the same time. Right, the problem there is that um, if you do first come first serve, you're, you're first going to prioritize the people who get sick first rather than people who get sick the most. Um, and part of the problem there is also that Many people just have more limited access to health care, to health insurance, to health treatment. You know, if someone has great insurance and they have access to transportation, they're more likely to seek health care sooner than someone who's isolated or someone who's uninsured and worried about, you know, not just how they're going to pay for health care, but how they're going to pay for their next meal or someone who lacks transportation access. So first come, first serve seems like it might result in a kind of fair and random selection, but it's more likely to favor those who already have socioeconomic advantages because they tend to be at the front of the line already. Would it be ethical to prioritize people who were vaccinated against COVID over those who were not? There's understandable frustration with people who refused vaccination and then show up at the hospital desperately ill with COVID. We think those people made a bad choice. But is it the purpose of healthcare to punish people for their bad choices? And in this case, we might be punishing them with, with 
death and a miserable death at that. I don't think that's the purpose of healthcare. I think it's immoral for people who could be safely vaccinated to refuse it when we're in a worldwide health emergency. But people do lots of immoral things and they should still be treated medically when they need it. What about prioritizing a class of people, for instance, healthcare workers, giving them sort of, you know, first dibs on the ventilator if they're ill? Right. As a practical matter, it makes some sense to prioritize people based on their contributions to keeping our health system functioning. Not as a reward, but because we need them. But in general, I'm not in favor of creating you know, favored classes of people based on how useful they are. That instrumentalizes those people and it makes their value as human beings dependent on their usefulness. And it's pretty clear that doing that would also endanger a whole lot of people. Are children useful? Are people who are jobless or unhoused useful? I don't think usefulness is the right criterion for prioritizing healthcare. Now, New York State has guidelines for how medical staff should decide which patients will get a ventilator during a pandemic if there's a shortage. Can you summarize what the guidelines say and let us know, have there been any updates or changes since the pandemic began? The New York State guidelines were developed in 2015, and that was in response to the H1N1 pandemic of 2009. And New York State's Task Force on Life and the Law proposed ventilator allocation guidelines, which they developed with the explicit goal of saving the most lives in an influenza pandemic and giving priority to patients for whom ventilator therapy would most likely be life-saving. So they prioritize on the basis of objective criteria regarding benefit and survivability. So they rule out non-clinical allocation criteria, including things like first come, first serve, or randomized lottery, or prioritizing certain social categories, including healthcare workers. So their criteria are not subjective, or that's the goal at least, and they, um, and they do support the goal of, of trying to save the most lives. They rejected a few other criteria, including age, because of the potential for discrimination against the elderly. Um, and of course, the elderly are also more likely to, to have pre-existing conditions that might make them more vulnerable as well. Washington State has guidelines too. Uh, can you explain why advocates for the disabled have complained about the criteria in use in Washington? Right. Um, Washington State had one of the first significant outbreaks of COVID in the U.S. And so they released a set of, of guidelines early um, in the pandemic. And in their guidelines, the presence of significant underlying disease process that predicts poor short-term survival was one of several of their clinical criteria that they thought should be considered. Now, um, advocates for the disabled filed a legal complaint against their policy saying that the policy used discriminatory criteria that would disadvantage or exclude disabled individuals from access to life-sustaining ventilators. And in particular, they were concerned about the use of so-called uh, baseline functional status, and that included things like your physical ability, cognition, and general health 
in making those allocation decisions because both physical ability and cognition would easily pick out certain disabled persons for lower priority, regardless of whether or not they needed a ventilator. So those kinds of supposedly objective clinical criteria can disproportionately affect certain people. And I think we should be worried if those people are already disadvantaged and discriminated against. When people are already facing unjust discrimination in their lives, healthcare discrimination really just piles on and it also threatens their lives. Now, society can set up guidelines for the distribution of scarce resources, and it sounds like different states have done that um, and are doing that. But what happens when someone who is wealthy or influential just opts out of the, the system and buys their own ventilator or hires their own nursing staff or turns their own bedroom into an ICU? How Does that have an impact on the rest of us? Well, it would certainly affect us if their use of resources took those resources away from other people or from society at large. It's not obvious that that would happen. It would clearly happen if many, many people started doing that, setting up their own private healthcare systems in their homes. Um, I, I don't think we're facing that kind of situation. Um, one of the, the real concerns that disabled people had early in the pandemic was their worry that for those who actually use a ventilator all the time in their everyday lives, they were concerned that if they got sick and went to a hospital, their ventilator might be taken away and given to someone else, someone who had higher priority in the allocation scheme. And, and that's a legitimate concern and that would be unjust. Um, I, I think we might be worried about someone wealthy who is not contributing to the common good and, and taking away resources, but I'm not sure that, that someone setting up their own private doctor and nurse would actually have that effect. When there are shortages of nurses, and it seems like across the nation right now during the pandemic, there's a huge shortage of nursing staff and other hospital staff, it really seems like all the patients potentially are going to suffer because there just aren't enough nurses or staff to go around. What do philosophers think the solution is to a shortage like this? So the shortage of nurses, it has many causes, I think it's quite complex and it includes people who, who just, you know, have left during this pandemic crisis because their jobs have just become so difficult and, and unbearable in some sense. And uh, there's long been concern about burnout among healthcare workers and uh, what we might be able to do to help them. But of course, nurses require training. You can't just, you know, churn them out in a, in a, in a manufacturing facility or something like that. And so it's a long-term problem. And right now it's become uh, a short-term crisis because of course, when someone is in an ICU and, and requires a, a ventilator, they require a person who's able to take care of them there. And if we lack um, individuals who are able to do that, individuals with the training and the skills to do that, then it doesn't matter how many ventilators we have, we won't be able to take care of those patients. So there's a significant crisis there. I think that 
because it has multiple causes, the solution will also be multifactorial, right? Perhaps uh, we need to protect healthcare workers better. Perhaps we need to pay them better, uh, more in line with the level of skills that they have, um, protect them from, from infectious diseases better, provide them with better equipment. I don't know. There's, there's many causes and many solutions there. Dr. Johnson, I really appreciate your time. Sid Johnson is a philosopher and associate professor of bioethics and humanities at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air.